service. I want to push you over the edge and say be here. This is a great time. First of all, we're going to spend time eating a meal together at the outset. But then we're going to take a, a time, about an hour, just to give public thanks to God. Um, we're going to sing songs of thanksgiving. And we're going to open up the mics for you to come and just share what you're thankful for. What God has done because we have a good, good Father. And to thank Him because of what He's done in Jesus Christ. But to thank Him for all the other benefits that we have enjoyed. So part of experiencing joy in life is knowing who to give thanks to and enjoying that. So I want to encourage you to be a part of that joyful celebration tonight. So we'll be starting at 5 o'clock. Well, we live in a world where it often trivializes and even satirizes the sacred. And when I was growing up, there was a very popular movie where the advertisement or a catchphrase was, we're on a mission from God. We're on a mission from God. Now, Hollywood and popular culture may find that as fodder for comedy, but God takes that calling very seriously, as well as should those who hear that call as well. And as we've been going through 1 Corinthians, we've been looking at somebody who has been called by God, who is on a mission sent by him. And he knew it, and it affected how he saw himself, it affected how who he felt accountable to, it affected what he viewed the end game of all this to be, and it viewed, it affected how he viewed the source of his calling. And so we're, again, we're going to be looking at the Apostle Paul today and look at his sacred trusts being entrusted with the deep mysteries of God. We'll look at that today. And if you have your Bibles, you might want to crack it open to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Well, let me pray for us before we get going with this morning's sermon. Again, Lord, I thank you for what you've done in David Peter's life, in Alyssa's life, in Jennifer's life, and I pray for them that this would be a stake in the in the ground that they know that they know that they know that they have publicly identified with you, and that all the benefits of being a follower of you, Jesus, are afforded them. They are your children. And that you'll bring to completion the good work you started in them. We pray that you'll open our eyes today and help us to see the benefits that you have for us in your word. So Lord, show us these things and use this to make us more like Jesus. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen. So 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1-7. through 7. This, then, is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ, and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear but that, that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light 
what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of this saying, Do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though, as though you did not? If you've been with us, you kind of know the drill. Paul planted this church in Corinth. He had now been away, and he had to address by a letter some of the things that had gone sideways with this church. They had been lining themselves up in division behind church leaders. They were enamored with earthly wisdom, and he needed to address some of the things, some of the misconceptions about the Christian life. One of those great misconceptions about who Paul was and his role in their life. Indeed, this man, Paul, was on a mission from God. And a man on a mission from God knows what he has been entrusted to do. And so he says, This then is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ, and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. This man, Paul, who started out as an enemy of the cross, who Jesus apprehended, he transformed, made him really repurposed, redeemed, and, and sent him out to proclaim the gospel. In fact, he introduces this letter as Paul called to be an apostle, literally a sent one of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He knew that Jesus had called him by his grace to proclaim this gospel. And so he continues to paint this picture saying, Guys, don't you understand that I am Jesus' sent one? Come here to tell you the gospel. And the words he chooses are very interesting. The first word he uses, we translate as servant. But it's, it's much more than just someone who is a slave or someone who is a uh, a table waiter. That's where we get deacon from. Now, this, this word has to do with someone who is a, a servant under one, under authority. Someone who represents the interests and the name of that authority. Save like a general who represents a country or a king. Indeed, he's saying, I am Jesus' servant, representing him, his interests, of his kingdom. And then he goes on to say, Paul says, as those who have been entrusted. What's interesting, what, what the verbal phrase really is a noun. As a household servant, if you will. How many of you have seen the, the uh, yogurt oikos in, in the, the um, supermarket? Anyone? Oikos is not yogurt, folks. Oikos means house. Paul says, I am a servant of the household of God. And I've been entrusted with the mysteries 
of the kingdom of God. It's very similar to the servant Eleazar. We read about him in Genesis 24, where he's sent out by Abraham to go find a wife for his master, for Isaac. He's been entrusted with the responsibility of the house to find a wife, if you will, for the son of the household. Literally, he says, I'm a household servant of the mysteries of God. And these mysteries, or as Paul said earlier, God's secret wisdom, he said in chapter 2, verse 7, are wrapped up in the power of God, the power of his gospel, which originally appears like weakness because of the cross. The truth, God's power is demonstrated in the resurrection. And his power is demonstrated in calling those who were not influential, those who were not wise, those who were not noble by human standards. And his power is revealed by his Holy Spirit, revealing this to people who would put their faith in Christ. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 10, he says, These things, um, these, are, these are the things God has revealed to us by his Holy Spirit. I think the, the new international version, the 2011 version translate this as the mysteries of God has revealed. Indeed, a mystery is something that is hidden, though perhaps it is in plain sight. But you have a hard time figuring it out. It's more than just knowing the information. It's understanding it. The world hears the message of the gospel of Christ and views it as foolishness because they don't get it. You need to have your eyes opened. That's where the power of God is displayed through the Holy Spirit. You know, I had the privilege to sit in with three of our candidates for baptism. It was interesting. Two of them said this to me. I heard my whole life. One of our young men said, since I was three, about Jesus having died for me. Then I realized it was for me. Not just as you heard Jen say, not just for us, but for me. That's the Holy Spirit turning on the light, opening your understanding, revealing the mystery of God, of the gospel. Paul's mission was to be a good steward of that mystery and to seek to make it known. In verse 2 he says, and it required, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. That is trustworthy. That is reliable. And if You've been following us the last few years as we've been studying the, the Apostle Paul and his ministry in the book of Acts. He was certainly that. He, was not, he did not allow himself to be distracted by other things. In fact, as we get to chapter 7 of, of this letter, he's going to talk about how he decides to forego marriage for the, the kingdom of God, for the gospel. He's not deterred by challenges. In fact, he's going to talk about that later on in this own chapter about how he's just um, racked and, and taking all sorts of heat for the gospel. He's also not lacking motivation. In chapter 9, he's going to say, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. But in faithfulness, he's not necessarily called to success. He's not necessarily called to fame. He's not called to plant a megachurch in Corinth. He's not called to earthly blessing. He's not even called to be well-liked. He's called to be faithful with this message that he has been given. And yes, before this, this church, Paul is highlighting 
his call and his position, but he's also highlighting the sacred responsibility of this life-giving message that needs to be made known to men and women. You know, in some ways, this is similar to the, the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. You're probably familiar with it. Ten talents are divided between three servants. One gets five, one gets two, one gets, I guess it's eight talents, I guess. But the, the point is, each one were given a talent. We're commanded to take that talent and advance his master's interest. One takes five, earns five more. One takes two, earns two more. Another takes one and buries it. See, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you've been entrusted with something. At the very least, his gospel and some sort of spiritual gift. Are we being faithful with what we have been entrusted with? Along those lines, a man who's on a mission from God knows to whom he is truly accountable. Verse 3, he says, I care very little if I am judged by you or any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord Jesus who judges me. Now, Paul is very aware that this Corinthian church has been judging him has been evaluating his ministry. And they're questioning him. They're questioning him if he's not preaching with enough wisdom. He seems to be coming in weakness. What he's giving them seems to be spiritual milk instead of spiritual meat. And they even question him as he claims to be a master builder, building their faith. But let's face it, it's pretty difficult to stay the course when you're trying to minister to folks and they're criticizing you. The temptation is to become a people pleaser and give them what you think they want or to quit altogether. And Paul does neither. Even though this criticism stung, Paul's concern was not what they thought of him. Indeed, they were immature and worldly. He wasn't concerned about what a human court would think about him. It was without the the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, and even his own conscience. He didn't hold that up as the standard. He said, hey, I can have blind spots. There's sin in my life I might not see. Ultimately, he sought to please the Lord Jesus who sent him. And any of us who have a sense of call by the Lord Jesus need to know who we're trying to please. Because if we don't know that, we'll be all over the map, the all over the map. You may be practically serving people, but ultimately it is the Christ, it is Christ Jesus whom we need to serve. We need to know who we are trying to please. It's important in a world that's trying to cause to conform to their standard. On the other hand, on the other hand, we need to take care in criticism we give another servant of the Lord. You see, Jesus ultimately is a judge. We are not. He'll say this in his, his letter to the Romans, chapter 14, verse 4. He says, Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand before the Lord who is able to make them to stand. That doesn't mean we're not discerning. 
That doesn't mean we don't hold up to the standard of Scripture. That doesn't mean we don't ask questions. But the truth of the matter is that some of us have an interesting call that maybe we don't fully get. They have a heart. They have a vision. They're thinking out of the box in a way that we've never thought. And God is doing something unique in them and through them. Perhaps some of you have heard of the great missionary Hudson Taylor. When he got to China, the way of missions was, we're hoping the Chinese are going to come to us English people and learn the gospel. But we're not going to adjust to them. Hudson Taylor decides to dye his hair black, puts on a pigtail, starts wearing the, the, the clothes of people, starts living their lifestyle, starts eating like they eat. And all of, all of the English missionaries are just shaking their heads saying, what are you doing? But he is the one who's effective in starting to bring the gospel and contextualizing the gospel, realizing that the gospel is not bringing Western civilization to people. It's bringing the good news of Jesus Christ to them. And it changes the face of missions. But everyone thought, Hudson Taylor is just off his board. Be careful not to judge the servant. Because the Lord may be using him or her in a unique way. On the other hand, the man on a mission from God also knows what the end result will be. In verse 5, Paul says, Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light that what is, will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. You know, Paul's worldview was highly eschatological. In other words, he lived with the end in mind. That is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's asking the question, what will I have to show before him when he comes? He addresses this a couple times in our letter so far in chapter 1, verse 8, talking about the day of the return of the Lord, chapter 3, verse 13. And it was part of what he was pointing to when he cautions the leaders of the Corinthian church to be very careful what they build upon in the building upon the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the quality of that work, whether gold, silver, or costly stones, wood, hay, or stubble, it will be tested. It will be revealed. And so any hidden action and motives of the heart will be revealed also when he returns. Because God sees. There's nothing that is hidden from him. And again, Paul cautions them and instructs them not to get caught up in judging or evaluating, but to wait until the Lord Jesus Christ returns and reveals what's going on and what's hidden. Now what's interesting here is the language that Paul used. He starts out talking about that which is in darkness. And that can certainly point to something that is evil, something that is sinful, that's being hidden, if you will. And indeed, when Jesus returns, those things will be revealed. They will be judged. But what is done in secret is not necessarily wicked. Jesus, in Matthew 6, verses 3 through 6, talks about giving in secret in order that your Father may reward you. And prayers offered in secret 
also with the promise of reward. Now look here what happens in verse 7. Paul's implication is not on judgment, but on praise that you're going to receive. That at the time, each will receive their praise from God. I think the application is plain enough. When Jesus returns, all is revealed. What is done in trust, in faithfulness, in pure devotion to Christ, it will receive praise and reward from our God and our Father. And those things that are not, will not. And they will be experienced as loss or waste, looking looking back as wasted effort. But ultimately, Paul's pointing to let Jesus take care of the evaluation of others. Tend to yourselves and ask the question, am I living with the end in mind? And last of all, the man on the mission knows the grace that he has received. Verses 6 through 7. Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying. Do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against another. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Here Paul holds up himself and Apollos as those who had received the grace of being called to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in his kingdom. What they hadn't given, they hadn't earned, it was given to them. It was God's grace. And indeed, the mystery that God had entrusted them with was one of grace. The accountability and reward they would receive would be one of grace. But these Corinthian believers, they sought to go beyond and add to what that grace had to say through human wisdom, through factional hero worship, and even self-promotion that was anchored in self rather than the exaltation of Jesus. That's why Paul goes on to use this proverb, do not go beyond what is written. Then he concludes, then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. Paul wants to ground them in the humility of grace. Again, verse 7, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? He's saying, you need to adjust your reality scope. There's no reason to be puffed up. There's no reason to be proud. There's no reason to create divisions among us. All you have comes as a gift of God's grace. This is the view that Paul wants the Corinthians to have of himself and Apollos and of themselves. What we have, we have by grace. And that's what I'd like for the Green Community Church. Because grace reorients us and causes us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Grace is a great equalizer. Not to think too lowly of others. Grace gives us hope when we fail 
knowing that our salvation and our spiritual growth are not dependent on our ability to perform. And grace humbles us and causes us to worship a gracious God who sent His Son and paid the costly price of our salvation and extend to us love that is unspeakable, amazing. He did this to make a way that we might be His, that we may have His life, that we may have His Spirit come dwell within us, that we might have His right standing, that we might have His redeeming purpose, and that we might have everlasting reward. We need to be anchored in that great mystery. And it is a mystery sometimes. You say, why God? Why? It's anchored within the mystery of His love and His purposes. And to be anchored in His grace, to be anchored in His grace truly, that is what will cause us to live as though we are on a mission. God. We pray for us and I'll have the worship team close this up. Lord, we are thankful. We're thankful for this word. We're thankful for the Apostle Paul, who was a faithful servant of the mysteries of God. We are, I believe we are legacies of that ministry. As the gospel spread to the nations, it spread to us. And most of all, we are thankful for Jesus, in whom we have life, in whom we have the love of God, in whom we have the dwelling of the Holy Spirit within us, in whom we have a repurposed life and a glorious future. So Lord, we're grateful. Would you give us the grace, Lord, to be convinced that you have a mission for each one of us. That you would help us to be faithful with what we've been entrusted with. Knowing that we want to please you, ultimately, at the world around us. And that everything we have is for you. So we're grateful for your kindness, your love, and your mercy. Would you make this a truly a season of thanksgiving to our God, from whom all blessings flow. Lord Jesus, it's in your name I pray these things.